Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working Radio Show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This particular sermon concerns the opening lines of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you're like most Christians, or even many non-Christians, you can say those words in your sleep. But familiarity is not the same thing as knowledge, and sometimes familiarity can keep us from knowing something as deeply as we should. If we want to know these familiar opening lines of the Lord's Prayer as deeply as we should, we need to keep in mind what Jesus is up to in the Sermon on the Mount where the Lord's Prayer appears. Jesus again and again emphasizes to his disciples that God the Father, the King of heaven and earth, is their Father. And he is calling on them to grow up into what it means to be sons of the Father. And of course, Jesus, as the perfect Son, is not only our Savior, but also our example of what it means to be a son. In short, it means that we reflect the Father's loves, desires, goals, and character. If we do that, One of the first places it will show up is in our prayers. Conversely, what we pray for is one of the best indicators of our true loves, desires, goals, and character. And changing what we pray for is one of the best ways of changing our loves, desires, goals, and character. And that is a big part of what Jesus is up to with the Lord's Prayer. The goal is not simply to give us some good things to pray for but to transform us so that our prayers are offered by hearts that actually desire the good things we pray for. To accomplish this, Jesus is putting His words in our mouths so that when we pray, we aren't the only ones saying Amen. This is what it really means to pray in Jesus' name. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Thanks for listening. We resume our consideration of the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in the middle of Jesus' longest sermon, at least as recorded in Scripture, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And we, uh, last time, considered the introduction, the up-ramp, as it were, into the Lord's Prayer. And this morning we begin into the Lord's Prayer proper. And so we will read together verses 9 and 10 of Matthew chapter 6. This is the Word of God. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Grace God and Father, we pray that you would bring this old word to us new today by your spirit. We pray that Jesus would preach these words to us as he preached them to his church 2,000 years ago. That these words would have their intended effect upon us. That we would be transformed into your children. That we would pray and live to your glory to the advancement of your kingdom, that indeed your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we come to the Lord's Prayer, we come to something that is very familiar. If there's any part of the Bible that would be familiar uh, pretty much to all Christians in all ages and all places, it would be the Lord's Prayer. 
And so when we come to this and we hear, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I bet you could pretty much say that in your sleep. And so one of the challenges, though, that we face when we come to a text that is very, very familiar is that uh, the fact that we already know quite a bit about it can keep us from learning all that we should about it. It can keep it from having its full and intended effect. And so we want to make sure that we come to these words fresh today and that we let Jesus wash us with these words. And so for us to, to have the full effect of these words, I want us to remember the context. This is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, this comes at the very heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want us to keep in mind what Jesus is up to in the Sermon on the Mount. And what we have seen so far is that Jesus has this theme of the fatherhood of God and His disciples being God's children. Now, uh, as evangelical Christians, that's something we're familiar with. We hear that a lot. We hear that terminology or not. But you have to recognize that the Sermon on the Mount is the first time in the New Testament, that Jesus refers to God as the Father of the disciples. As we saw before, the Jews so reverenced the name of God that they wouldn't say the name of God, even though God revealed it to Moses and the the name Jehovah or Yahweh appears many times in the Old Testament. The Jews would not even speak it. They would substitute the, the name Lord. And we still have that tradition today uh, in our Bibles whenever you see Lord in all caps that's standing for the name Jehovah or Yahweh. And so they had a very exalted view of God. The idea of God being their father, the king of the universe, the sovereign over all things, the one who divided the Red Sea and so forth, to have him as father and to speak to him as father was revolutionary Uh, to the Jews. And so Jesus keeps referring to God as your Father, your Father, your Father, throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And of course the assumption there is, well, if He is your Father, that makes Him, us, His children. And so these three great truths run throughout uh, the Sermon on the Mount, really throughout the New Testament, and they certainly run throughout the Lord's Prayer. God is King, God is Father, and God is ours. And so, Jesus here is really emphasizing our identity in Christ. Who has Christ made us? And what He's emphasizing is that through Christ, the Father has adopted us into His family. We are His children. This is a fact. God did not ask our permission to do this. He did this. He did this through Christ. This is what Jesus came to do. He has made us His children. That's a fact. That's like saying the sun rises in the east. It's not something for us to do. It is something that God has done through Christ. And Jesus also emphasizes in the Sermon on the Mount and in the Lord's Prayer our calling that God wants us to grow up into whom He has made us. Now, if you think of a king and a queen, and they 
uh, have a son or a daughter, they have a prince or a princess, in one sense, that child already has their full identity and their full status. They are a child of the king. But in another sense, that child has to grow up into what it means to be a child of the king. It means growing up to have a certain kind of character, growing up to think a certain way, growing up to love certain things, to hate certain things, to desire and long for certain things, to grow up into what it means to be noble or royal in truth. And so Jesus is emphasizing our calling. Now, you can see that throughout the Sermon on the Mount. For example, chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus says, for us to do certain things so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. In other words, in one sense, He has made us sons. That's a fact. It's done. In another sense, we need to become sons. In other words, we need to grow up into what that means. And being sons, as we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount, means being like the Father. It means having His loves, having His desires, having His hates, having His... uh, longings and his purposes as our own it means being like the father Matthew 6:48 you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect for us to grow up to mature to reach the goal for which we have been created and saved means for us to become like the father in his character Jesus also says that it means that we glorify the father Matthew 5:16 that you may glorify your father in heaven It also means that we witness, we bear witness of our Father, and we do that by exuding the life of the Father in how we live. Again, Matthew 5.16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And finally, it is intended that as the children of the King, that we are blessed by the King and we are blessed visibly and publicly so that the world can see that. Matthew 6, 1. Jesus has a whole section there where he says, don't do certain things because if you do that thing, you're not going to be rewarded by your Father who is in heaven. Don't do it to be rewarded by men. Do it in secret to be rewarded by God, and your Father who is in heaven will reward you openly. Now what we need to see is that this is not something ancillary to the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel. This is why Jesus saved us. Listen to Paul in Galatians chapter 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? That we might receive the adoption as sons that we might receive the adoption as sons. That's why Jesus saved us. That's what it means to be saved. Forgiveness is not the goal of salvation. Forgiveness is a necessary means of salvation. It's necessary for God to purchase our pardon, we who have mutinied against Him. That's necessary, but that's not the goal. The goal is nothing less than for us to be brought into God's family, made His sons and His daughters. Now, so Paul says, so that we might be received the adoption of sons. That's why the Son of God came. Now listen to what he says next in Galatians 4. 
And because you were sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Notice he says, because we are sons, God has sent His Spirit into our hearts. He doesn't say here, He has spit His Spirit into our hearts to make us sons. He has made us sons through Christ. He sends us the Spirit because we are His sons. So in other words, true sons do not have a different spirit than their father. They have the same spirit. They have the same loves. They have the same desires. They have the same goals. They have the same character. And notice also that it is not only the father's spirit that he has given us, but he says the spirit of his son. It is also the spirit of Jesus, the perfect son. In other words, it is the spirit of the father and also the spirit of perfect sonship. Jesus is the perfect son, and he saved us by being the perfect son. That's how Jesus can both be our savior and our example. Jesus is the perfect son, and he saved us by being the perfect son in order that we might become perfect sons. And the Son perfectly reflects His Father's loves, desires, goals, and character. That's why you have Jesus saying again and again in the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John, saying things like, The Father who sent me is with me, for I always do the things that please Him. He says things like, The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me. He says things like, I do not seek my own glory. Nor do I honor myself. Rather, it is the Father who honors me. So if we have the Spirit of the Son in us, we're going to follow the path of the Son in His relationship with the Father. And so everything that Jesus calls us to do in the Sermon on the Mount is something that He in fact does in His life and ministry. Being the perfect Son, saving us, bringing us into God's family so that we can be perfected as sons. And everything that he teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer is the prayer of Jesus himself. Jesus is teaching us to pray as he prays. And I notice I didn't say as he prayed. I said as he prays. Because the Bible teaches us that Jesus even now lives to intercede for us. And so Jesus is teaching us to pray as he prays. He is teaching us to pray in such a way that we're not the only ones saying amen. He's teaching us to pray in such a way that he says amen when we pray too. Now, the Bible also teaches us that the spirit that God has given us also intercedes for us according to the will of God. And these two things are connected by the Bible, praying in Jesus' name and praying according to the will of God. In John chapter 14, Jesus promises His disciples, He promises you, if you pray anything in My name, I will do it. Okay. Now, you've probably prayed some things in Jesus' name and had God not do it. And you've probably wondered about that uh, promise. And you probably thought, we're always supposed to pray in Jesus' name. And yet Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer and in Jesus' name, nowhere appears in it. 
And that's because praying in Jesus' name means more than tacking that on to the end of our prayers. It means praying according to the will of God because in uh, the first epistle of John, he makes it clear, if we pray anything according to God's will, we know that he hears us and he grants us. So we have this connection between praying in Jesus' name and praying according to the will of the Father. But all of this is involved in what Jesus is teaching us here. So, finally, in Galatians chapter 4, notice the last thing that Paul says. Let me read this little passage again so we, we get it uh, all in view. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. The first thing sons do is cry out to their father. Part of the deep relationship that should be there between children and parents is talking. Talking. They speak. They talk. And that's what the Spirit of Christ in us makes us do. Cry out to the, heart, uh, to the Father. The heart of being a son is talking to the Father. In other words, praying, because that's what praying is. It's talking to God. And at the heart of transforming us into the image of the perfect Son is transforming, therefore, our prayers. We cannot be transformed deeply in our hearts without having our prayers transformed. Correspondingly, if the way we pray, what we pray, why we pray is transformed, that is going to entail the transformation of ourselves and, of course, through the Lord's Prayer, through praying according to God's will, praying big things like, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, God also transforms the world. Okay? So, at the heart of transforming our prayers, God is transforming what we love. He's transforming what we hate. He's transforming what we long for. He's transforming our deepest desires. Because if we don't have those things transformed in us, ultimately we're not going to be seeking the word, the will of God. Okay? In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is not just giving us good things to ask for. He's also transforming us so that we desire what He teaches us to pray for. So the goal is to pray as sons. That is, to pray for what God wants with a heart that wants what God wants. That's the heart of a perfect son. That's the heart of Jesus. Praying for what the Father wants with a heart that wants what the Father wants. And so He teaches us to pray. First thing, what's our deepest desire? What's our deepest longing? What, what, what do we breathe out every time we breathe, or should... Hallowed be thy name. Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That means both I magnify your name, I say may your name be glorified, may your name be honored, and may everyone in the world, may every man, woman, and child in every place, great and small, rich and poor, smart and not so smart, talented and not so talented, every place, uh, those who are powerful, 
those who have no power, may everybody in the world, those who live in Muslim lands, those who live in Hindu lands, those who live... uh, who, who are animistic, those who are pantheistic, those who are atheistic, may all of them, may presidents, may Supreme Court justices, may everybody hallow your name and honor your name. That's what we're praying for. May your kingdom come. That is, may the reign that you have established through Jesus Christ and exalting Him to your right hand, because the Father gives the kingdom to the Son, May we see that pervade the world. And what does that look like? Well, it simply looks like this. It looks like God's will being done on earth in the same perfect and complete full way that it is done in heaven. It means everybody honoring God as God through in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit and everybody in every position asking the question, how do I serve God in this? How do I honor God in this? And that means that, uh, for example, in our nation, when Congress would open session, there would be prayer. And the prayer would be that God would have mercy on us, that God would show us His will, that we as a nation would honor Him. And it means that the discussions or debates that you would have on the floor of the Senate and of the House And the discussions that you would have among justices of the Supreme Court, the discussions that you would have between the president and his cabinet would be discussions about what would God have us do here? What does it mean to honor God as Father here? What does it mean to honor Christ as Lord here? What does it mean to follow the Spirit here? Now, can you imagine such a thing? We're supposed to pray for this. This is what we're praying for. And, of course, we're supposed to pray for it with a heart that wants what God wants. Now, it's not so much understanding what this means in the big picture, in the abstract, and it's not so much praying for thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, hallowed be their name. It's not so much praying for those in the big and in the abstract that is our challenge. Because we need to ask ourselves, where are we being challenged in this regard? Okay? I mean, does anybody here not want God's name to be hallowed? Does anybody here not want for the kingdom to come? Does anybody here not want for God's will to be done? No, of course not. We all want those things conceptually in the big picture. Our challenge comes when those things go from the big conceptual level down into the real world and start coming close to us and they start becoming tangible. That is where we have the challenge when it comes into our daily lives. And I'll give you a a couple of examples. I've already talked about praying for God's will to be done like with our nation. One of the things we often stumble with is when it may look like that God's kingdom coming, His will on earth being done as it is in heaven, means that our nation comes under judgment. Now that can be a stumbling block because now it's coming close, right? And we love our country. And besides that, we live here. (laughs) And our children do. And our grandchildren too. Do you want your grandchildren to suffer? Do you want them to live in a bad economy? 
Do you want them to live under an impressive, tyrannical government? No, you don't want any of those things. I don't either. But that becomes a stumbling block sometimes when there is a disconnect between the advancement of the kingdom and the way we would like to see our particular country being blessed. Now, if you want to read about this in in the Bible, you can read the book of Jonah. The whole book of Jonah is about this issue. Because Jonah was a prophet of the Lord, and God sent him to Nineveh, which was the the capital city of the uh, Assyrian. I always get Assyrian and Syrian. Those are two different things. I get them confused, and I can't remember which one Nineveh was. I think it was Assyria. Anyway... This is this pagan nation. He sends Jonah to go there and preach repentance to them because of the wickedness. Now, Jonah, we know, goes the opposite direction, but we, need, we often misunderstand as to why. Well, the reason was is that, as Jonah well knew as a prophet, Israel was not honoring God as God. Israel, the covenant people who've received all the grace and blessings of God, she's not honoring God as God. She deserves the judgment of God. And... There is this growing power that Jonah can see is coming to dominate the region. And he can see that God, if Israel doesn't repent, God is going to send Assyria to afflict Israel and to judge Israel. Israel is going to come under the dominion and hegemony of Assyria. And God doesn't send Jonah at this point to preach to Israel. He sends Jonah to preach to Assyria. Well, Jonah doesn't want Assyria to come under the blessing of God. He doesn't want Assyria to repent. He wants Assyria to come under the judgment of God because he figures they're worse than Israel, right? Hey, Lord, we're not perfect, but we're a lot better than Assyria. Well, you know, that's just not how good parents deal with their own children. Good parents don't want to hear from their children I may not be perfect, Dad, Mom, but I'm better than Johnny or Susie down the block. That's not the standard for good parents. Good parents want their children to reflect what's right from the inside out. And so Jonah knows that God is merciful. He does not want him to grant Assyria repentance. That's why he doesn't want to go there. But God sends him anyway. What does Nineveh do? Nineveh repents and sackcloth and ashes. And then what does Jonah do? He sulks. He sulks. Because this is exactly what he didn't want to happen. He basically says, God, I knew that you were merciful. I knew this was going to happen. But you know, what God is doing is he's trying to bring his own people to jealousy by letting them see Pagans who deserve nothing coming under God's grace. His own people have forgotten what it means to be his children and to live under his grace. And so we often face a challenge. You know, our nation has had many, many blessings. You know, you you often hear in discussions uh, politically today of American exceptionalism. And that's a word that's batted around. And it's often used in a way that means it's kind of an arrogant thing. American, we're, exception, we're exceptional. Well, there is a sense in which there is, has been, at least in the past, an American exceptionalism, but it's not a proud exceptionalism. The exceptionalism that America really enjoyed was 
was being exceptionally blessed by God's grace and goodness. Now, that's not a proud exceptionalism. That's a humble exceptionalism because it's an exceptionalism not only that is accessible to every nation, but to which every nation is called. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. It doesn't say blessed is America whose God is the Lord. Blessed to any nation, blessed to all, or all those nations whose God is the Lord. And that's why in the early days of America, when they really understood this exceptionalism, the exceptionalism of God's grace, how did they want to express that exceptionalism? They wanted to be a city on the hill in the right way. They wanted the gospel. They wanted America to be a launching point for the gospel for the world. In other words, they wanted to say to every nation, come and experience God's exceptional grace. Now, there's been a different kind of exceptionalism that has come about in America more recently, which has nothing to do with God. It has to do with the genius of America, the greatness of America qua America. In other words, America in and of herself. Okay? Now that America has this lone supernation, superpower status in the world, and she has the ultimate bully pulpit in the world, she's preaching a false gospel. She's preaching the same false gospel that Rome did. It was the genius of Rome. It was the spirit of Rome that was going to bring peace and blessing to the world. Well, that's a big lie. And when America starts preaching that gospel, she's preaching a lie. Now, do you love your country? I love my country. But we have to recognize that true patriotism is calling our country to, do, to pray this prayer and mean it to pray this prayer and mean it. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Earth as it is in heaven. Can you imagine the President of the United States at the State of Union address speaking to all Congress and speaking to the whole nation? Can you imagine a President concluding his speech saying, let me close by having us all stand and let's join together in the prayer that our Lord taught us our Father who art in heaven. And everybody there in Congress is standing and praying and everybody in their living rooms is standing and praying. That is what we want. But we have to understand that ultimately, if our beloved America will not repent, then we have to say, Thy kingdom come. And it's not necessarily the same thing as our country, bless her right or wrong. Those are two different prayers. Now, let's, let's take this a little bit closer. Now, we brought this kind of to the national level. Uh, let's bring it more close than that. Let's bring it down into the details of our daily lives. We really face the challenge of praying this prayer with the heart that wants what the Father wants when thy will be done on earth becomes thy will be done in my life. Or as Jesus put it in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but thy will be done. And he's talking not conceptually. He's talking tangibly in a very real situation where the Father is calling him to go for the cross, to the cross for things he didn't do. The innocent to die for those who are guilty. It was very real. It was very tangible. The main point of the difficulty, the main point of the temptation 
in the Garden of Gethsemane or in the Garden of Eden is the question, are the Father's interests your interests? Does your happiness and well-being line up with God's desires and His well-being? In other words, if the way we see the Christian life is that it basically means all of our deepest fulfillment and happiness and desires and aspirations go down the tubes so that God can have His, guess what? You're not going to walk that path very long. You're, not, you're just not going to stay on that path. There's no way. You're going to blow up at some point because you think that God is saying, lay aside everything that means your happiness and blessing in favor of God. Now, it tells us in Hebrews 12 that as Jesus um, was in the garden, it's, it, and it says there, you have not, like, like Christ, striven to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And it's talking about where Jesus was sweating blood, which, uh, by the way, has been a medically documented phenomena on cases when people are under extreme, extreme uh, stress, that the, the pressure and the stress gets to the point that the, the capillaries in their forehead burst, and they literally sweat uh, blood. And that's what Jesus was facing. It says in Hebrews 12 that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. It does not say that Jesus laid aside his interests in favor of the Father's interest. It is not, what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane was not Stoicism. It was an understanding, it was a believing the promises of the Father that he had forever joined his interests with the interests of his Son. That, that's what the promise, Romans 8.28, God works all things together for good to those who uh, are his, uh, the called ones, his children who love him. That's what that means. God has forever joined our good, our happiness, our ultimate fulfillment, our joy with his interests. Okay? This is saying that we have an ownership interest in the kingdom, just like Jesus does. That's why Jesus says to his disciples at one point, as the Father has given me a kingdom, so I give you a kingdom. And that's why Daniel 7, that George read to us this morning in the scripture reading, talks about the Son of God, the Son of Man receiving the kingdom at one point, and then it talks about his people receiving the kingdom. The Father gives the kingdom to Jesus. Jesus gives the kingdom to us. So when Jesus prayed, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This was not a sacrificing of Jesus' interest to the contrary interests of the Father. This was a submitting of the human's perspective of personal interests to the Father's perfect knowledge of those personal interests through faith in the Father's promise that he has forever joined those personal interests to his own and his further promise that he is orchestrating everything and every detail to work to the advancement of his interests and theirs. 
That's what that was. It was not stoic. For the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. He believed the Father's promise. The Father's will was Jesus' interest. It was not the Father's will to set aside the cross, for it was not the Father's will to set aside the joy on the other side of the cross. The exaltation, the glory, the joy on the other side of the cross. Jesus believed that. And so He prayed, and so He acted, and thus He was exalted to the right hand of God, given all power and authority in heaven and earth. And it says in Hebrews 12, after it discusses all this, that we are to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the perfect Son, because His Spirit is in us, and we are to be like Him. In this way, we are to lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us and to run with endurance race before us. What is the sin so easily entangles us? It's faltering in faith. It's reaching points in our lives where effectively we do not believe that our interests and God's interests are the same. It's points where we don't see that. It doesn't feel that way. Have you ever reached that kind of point? I know you have. I know you've reached points where it's just like, it doesn't seem like my happiness is really in God's view at this point. He's asking me spiritually to eat Brussels sprouts, to eat, think of something you don't like. You know, I'm supposed to eat Brussels sprouts so he can eat the good stuff. That's what this is about. Well, Jesus is our example. He is the one telling us, no, that's not what it's about. The Father's will and Jesus' interests are one and the same. And so, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we bring that into our individual daily lives, what that sounds like is, not my will, but thy will be done. Okay, that's what that sounds like when you get it down into your individual daily life. And we have to understand that when we pray that, though, we're not praying a stoic prayer. We're not praying that, set aside my interests so, God, you can have your interests. No, we're saying, God, I trust your promises. I trust your word. And I don't, I don't lean on my own understanding of what my interests are. I trust your perfect knowledge of what my interests are because I believe your promise that you have forever tied my interests to yours. What the Bible tells us, in short, is that through Christ, God the Father has said, that He doesn't want to be blessed apart from us. He doesn't want to be happy apart from us. He doesn't want to know joy apart from us. And so He is forever bound our good to His interests and to His glory. Now, our assurance then is the same as Jesus's. It's the same as Jesus, And that's what Romans 8.28, God works all things together for good. That's what it is all about. All about. So what shall we do then? What shall we do, practically speaking? Well, I want to encourage you to do a couple of things. 
And, of course, these have to do with your prayer life because that's what Jesus is talking about. Because if you pray the way he's talking about and you understand what you're doing, you're not just going to be transforming the world, you're going to be transformed yourself. I want to encourage you first, pray big. Pray big. Pray, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And understand what you're praying. And break that down. Break that down. Pray for the president, for Congress. Pray pray for all the different lands. Pray and long to see everybody, every place, everywhere, honoring God as God, rejoicing to do His will, seeking to do His will. Pray big. Pray big. Secondly, I want to encourage you to pray small. In other words, remember how thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Remember what that sounds like when you're praying it in your own life with something specific. What it sounds like is, not my will, but thy will be done. But remember what you're praying. Now, Jesus said to us, if anyone wants to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me, right? And by which we take him to mean, deny yourself, crucify yourself, have nothing to do with yourself, your interests don't mean squat. It's God's interests that mean everything. But as we've already seen, that's not what was happening at the cross. Taking up your cross doesn't mean you're a zero, It's God's interests that count. I mean, that, that, was, that was Satan's temptation in the garden to Eve. It's like, Eve, you better start thinking about yourself. Because what God's asking you to do, that's for Him. That's not necessarily for you. You want some happiness? You want some fulfillment out of this thing? You better start thinking for yourself. It's always the temptation. We need to remember that taking up your cross means laying aside our perception of what is in our interests and what is for our good and leaving that to God and trusting Him. That's what Jesus did when He took up His cross. If we're going to take up our cross and follow Him, we need to do what He did and not substitute something stoic. So, as you pray this, remember God knows what your interests are. And it is true that sometimes He calls us to do things that are really hard, that we can't do. Has God ever called you to do something and you just go, I just don't have the power to do this? I don't have the power to do this. Well, good. You're right where you need to be. You understand what's going on now. That's good. If you think you have all the power to do this, then we got a problem. we got to get things straight. No. Jesus himself, the flawless, sinless, perfect son, God the Son incarnate, As the perfect man, he didn't have the power in himself to go to the cross. I mean, we're told that God ministered to him through angels. We're told the Holy Spirit was with him. We're told he was raised by the power of the Spirit. Right? Where did Jesus look? Did Jesus say, I'm bulletproof? I can do anything. I've got the strength. I've got the power. Like that song, I got the power. Kids, if you don't know that song, don't worry about it. Um, it's, that's not what he did. He turned to his father. It says in Hebrews that he cried out to his father with tears and cries and that he was heard 
because of his godliness toward the Father. He cried out to the Father for strength to do this impossible thing, to do this impossible thing called the cross. Uh, and so, so it is with us. As we face things that on first blush we just go, no way. In other words, we're not even wanting to think about what the thing is. And maybe as we're here uh, talking, maybe God's brought up some things in your mind uh, that you've quickly shoved out of your mind because you don't want to see God know that you thought about that because then he would know you thought about that. You don't, you don't want him thinking. So it's like, hey, Jesus loved me. I can't hear you. You know, I've got, I'm not listening. I don't, want to, I don't want to hear that. Well, it's the same thing. We cry out to the Father for his power, for his help, for the ability to set aside our perception of our interests to believe his promise and to, take, and to go forward one step at a time. And as you do that, as you take those things before God and you ask him for strength, you will find that God will give you the ability to do what you can't do. And that's really what the Christian life is about. Doing the impossible. Doing that which you can't do. Becoming that which you aren't and can't become and doing that which you have no power to do. Everything in the Christian life is, you know, falls into that category. So, pray for God this week as you pray in the small for Him to lay on your heart, Lord, are there any areas of my life that I'm kind of just stuffing my ears and I don't want to think about them because I don't really, I either don't want to deal with them or I just don't see how I can deal with them. Well, ask him to lay those on your heart and then you go before him and you pray in the words of Jesus, not my will but thy will be done because I know you know my interests better than I know my interests. I'm just asking you for the strength to do this. I'm asking you for the power to do this just like you strengthen Christ to go to the cross. I'm asking you for the, the strength to do this one step at a time. In other words, part of praying, thy will be done on earth and heaven, is to add the little phrase, starting with me. We can't really pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, unless we're following it with, starting with me. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.